Welcome to the Ideas Show, the podcast about ideas that change the world and the people that make them happen. Over the course of this series, we will speak to some of the world's most esteemed listening leaders, we'll delve into the process of how ideas happen, and we will share stories of some of the most innovative ideas in history. This episode is part of our Listening Leader series, hosted by CEO and founder of Sideway 6, Will Reed. Hello and a very warm welcome to the first episode of The Ideas Show. Today is the first in our Listening Leader series and we are thrilled to be joined by Idel Harris, CEO of Mencup. Enjoy the show. So, welcome Idel to The Ideas Show and to our focus on leadership and listening leadership. Uh, thanks very much for You're very welcome. Us it's nice to be here. So just to kick off, it would be great to um, have a look at your approach to leadership and how you might kind of summarise uh, how you lead a very influential organisation over in the UK. Interesting question, because uh, I'm sure some other leaders feel the same way. Um, when I reflect on myself as a leader, I actually don't think about leadership in the traditional sense. So in other words, I don't think about leadership as one person providing leadership to a number of followers. But I'm really passionate about what I would describe as leadership at all levels. So I certainly try very, very hard to bring um, humility and honesty to my leadership role. So in other words, I don't ever assume um, nor try and give the impression that I have all the answers and that because I find myself in this fortunate position I'm always going to be the person best placed to make any decision and I try very hard to truly empower others um, at all levels in an organization in fact my ideal organization is one where there aren't too many levels and layers um, and I believe that brings out the best in people but of course at times there is a requirement to make those difficult decisions and when I'm called upon um, I can do that but I never make a decision without listening and um, really taking on board the views of others even people who I might disagree with. That's really really interesting so some of the things that jump out for me there is the emphasis on empowering people um, the emphasis on honesty and, and almost like a little bit of vulnerability in there, perhaps to not always have the answers as the leader. And then also um, the importance of kind of listening and consulting on decisions made. How does that, what, what are the kind of practical implications to that leadership style um, and to kind of implementing that within within an organization because I wouldn't say that that would be well as you touched upon that's not the default way of leading an organization well certainly when you take on any new position um, whether it's a a role at leadership level or not um, I would advise anyone you know to spend the first 90 to 100 days listening and learning certainly when I became CEO at Mencap in January earlier this year um, I made it um, very public um, internally that I wanted to spend you know my first 90 days out and about meeting as many people as possible um, learning about the organization um, seeing how the organization works its culture and its values 
or more than just written on a piece of paper, of course. And uh, and listening, yeah, listening to others and their perspectives mm -hmm. of what had gone before and what works well and what I like to call the even better ifs. So that's one uh, manifestation of it, you know, actively listening and being seen to host events and to try and use um, media channels and technology in a very visible way so that you're not talking to or at people, but that you are involving them in a conversation, which is, of course, hard to do when you have almost 9,000 colleagues who uh, work in three different countries in the United Kingdom. Absolutely. I mean, is there anything that you learned about how to make that work? When you have a job title such as chief executive officer, um, for many um, colleagues in your organization, that would just automatically mean, despite who you might be as a human being, that you are someone that they need permission to approach or they need permission to have a conversation with you directly. So um, again, I work really, really hard to um, give the impression, um, which is a truthful impression, hopefully, that I am approachable and accessible. So I go out of my way not to build into the way I work um, unnecessary obstacles for people to reach me or I'd hate anyone to think I was, you know, too important and too busy to have a conversation with them. And I also don't wait for people to knock on my door, but I do actively um, go out to meet people uh, at all, again, at all levels of the organisation and engage with them on a human level. So I am a lover of sending handwritten notes to people. And um, just in the last seven and a half months since I've been at Mencap, if I have heard um, of somebody doing something exceptional or I've heard about a real uh, life-changing moment, like someone having a baby or the death of a parent, even if I don't know that individual, if that information comes across my path, I take the time to, to write a note. And I think that human touch and showing that you're a human being should result in you being more approachable and breaking down some of those barriers and those myths that go with having a job title, such as a CEO. It feels like from what you're saying there, I mean, it's trying to get over that genuine approachability and humility. Um, it feels like perhaps there aren't shortcuts there. It's, it's, it's uh, consistency and coming from an honest place that's going to get that um, impression over to the people that you're, that you're leading. Have you ever come across um, any difficulties in kind of getting honesty from from your people um i'm sure that there was a lot of fantastic stuff that you heard when you first started within your new role at NCAP. Um, but i'm sure when you're trying to get out those kind of even better ifs did you ever face any difficulty kind of pulling those out because of your job title because of the um, yes, I think there's always going to be challenges kind of in, in doing that in a very truthful way because the person talking to you or the team having a conversation with you are, are conscious of the context in which they're having that conversation. And if they don't know you yet and, and are getting to know you, mm. then you have to make sure that they feel safe um, to, you know, to express their, their thoughts freely. So I certainly try and create that type of environment. Um, and I do ask leading questions. I mean, during the coronavirus um, crisis, 
when I haven't been able to physically go out and visit services and visit people at a time when probably showing up to support them has been you know more important than ever I have done a lot of virtual service visits and joined teams in our care facilities and in our supported living settings okay. and I've I've asked as well as general conversation and thanking them for the wonderful work they're doing, I have asked some really quite open and leading questions directly. Um, and once one person feels comfortable to answer, then the gates usually open and I get some very frank responses. Mm, that's fantastic. And do you do, is there a case of like amplifying those first voices or, or is that actually, um, might that be a negative because you're, I don't know, you might be betraying some trust or something. I'm just thinking that sometimes it can be beneficial to show that you're listening by showing what you've what you've heard. Is that something? That no, you I, would, I, would, you I do employ, employ that. It, but obviously, uh, depending on the context of the conversation, I often anonymize or make it a general point. Yeah. So in my communication to colleagues, I've been doing mm. um, regular videos since I started that, that go out to the workforce um, on a Friday afternoon, usually. Um, with just a general update on on what's uh, what's happening, and I'll often um, repeat, you know, to demonstrate that I have mm. been listening and that I have heard things, but I wouldn't necessarily, you know, say it was from Mary Smith in uh, uh, in Rochdale, for example. So um, because you you do want people to yeah, feel safe right. and you want them to feel able to mm. to speak up, and we have a a really active and vibrant online community. Um, conversation uh, for our uh, colleagues and others on Yammer and um, although sometimes some things can be said on Yammer that certainly make mm. myself and the executive team feel a bit affronted and you know might take something personally um, the way I've responded when colleagues at a senior level have felt a little bit taken aback by something that's been said is that it's actually a positive because if you've got the sort of culture where colleagues feel able to speak truth to power mm. to challenge you know what uh, senior leaders are saying I think that's the sign of a really healthy organization so we encourage it we don't shut it down and we thank people for raising um, these sometimes these sensitive issues with us that's super interesting I can imagine that being really powerful because as you say that again that's not the default um, certainly when I've worked in large organizations uh, I don't know if I've felt particularly comfortable speaking truth to power or, or if that's even been a cultural norm in, in many of those organisations. So that's, that's super interesting. We're now going to take a quick break and have a look at one of our ideas that changed the world. This is a short story in each episode about some of the most innovative ideas from the world of business and how they came to be. Now, the one that we're talking about today, I know that I certainly always have a few of these dotted around my desk and the house, a universal office essential, the post-it note. It all started in 1968 with a failed glue project as 3M scientist Spencer Silver accidentally created a sticky but not solid adhesive. The substance went without use for years until Art Fry, a fellow 3M employee, needed a bookmark that would stick to the paper without damaging the pages. The two colleagues began developing a product. Once they found themselves writing messages on their new notes to communicate around the office, they realized the full potential of the idea. They supplied the entire company with the new sticky notes and everyone loved them. 
Post-it notes now generate over $1 billion every year, with 4,000 varieties of the sticky used by us to be more collaborative, creative, and to remind us to feed the cat. It truly was an idea that was made to stick around. Well, I for one am certainly very glad that that idea came to life. If you've got an idea that you'd like us to feature in one of our episodes, then please drop us an email at podcast at theideashow.com. And now, back to our show with Adele. I want to take a step back to the, your career and what's led you to where you are. So there'll be um, a lot of listeners who listen to this um, and see that as an aspiration. Um, so I wanted to take a step back and, and look at the beginnings of your, your career, obviously, um, at, the, at the Metropolitan Police and then on to some um, really leading charities. And could you talk us through a little bit around what you learned early on? Some of the really Im- important points along the way, mm. I guess, have been um, that I, I was brought up in a large family. There was lots of brothers and sisters. And we never, ever talked about going to university. I wouldn't say my parents sort of actively discouraged it. It was just not really part of any of our futures. It just wasn't affordable or or um, probable. So um that's one of the reasons I didn't go to university and I went straight into uh, a career at age 17 and a half um, in the police. But I've always worked in the delivery of public service, whether that's been in the public service like the police and the NHS or in the third sector for the last 20 years of my career. So I guess there was something instilled in me from an early age about the importance of values and um, being in a role where you can positively make a tangible difference and hopefully see the difference that you're making and I guess through the my time in the police um, the whopping strike is the moment I think where things changed for me for those old enough to remember that and um, some striking um, workers Mm -hmm. print workers were um, out on the streets with their families they were obviously hungry and um, because they were on strike And I went into the police canteen and piled my tray full of bacon rolls and mugs of coffee. And I took them out to feed the the pickets, um, of which, of course, uh, I got into trouble for doing. But I think it was at that moment that I started to think I may be better off in a role that is more um, around the social side of policing rather than the black and white applying the rule of law type of policing. And so I left the police and um, did an open university degree in health and social care. And the rest, as they say, is history. Amazing. Um, It's a fantastic story around the walking strikes as well. So I want to talk about your first steps into um, leadership, managing people uh, and transition from that kind of individual contributor um, doing a role into the, the management and leadership. Can you talk a little bit around that and, and, and how that Well, my first role in terms of um, leading a team uh, at any sort of senior level was when I worked in the NHS and it was an internal mm. promotion. <laughs> and for anyone listening who, you know, has gone into, the, into mm. a leadership role and actually their task is to lead and manage and support a team of people who the day before were their pals and their peers, that's really, really tough because, of course, I, I knew all the things that 
well, when yeah. I was a team member, all the things that we used to moan about, you know, that our, our managers and leaders weren't doing. And suddenly I was in a position to do something about it. And then I realized it wasn't that simple because, of course, when you move into a leadership role, often you have a much bigger picture or you have information at your disposal that you don't have when you're in the team. So I really cut my teeth um, leading a team in, uh, in the NHS and actually really struggling um, to continue to be liked and to continue to be a friend and somebody that you know everybody wanted to confide in um, to balancing that with the need to you know manage people's work performance and hit targets and budgets and so I think that was uh, yeah it was a really um, interesting time for me and I, I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about my um, inverted commas management style. And that's, of course, the first transition. And then later on, you were transitioned from manager of perhaps a few people or manager of a team right through to starting to manage uh, departments and starting to manage organizations. Can you t- talk a little bit about the, the first time that you um, started to manage either a kind of large department or an organization? You know, the role that I took on in 2008 as CEO of Cornerstone was, um, you know, a huge step up because uh, that was uh, Cornerstone is one of the largest charities in Scotland, although small by comparison to Mencap, it was a, a significantly mm. big, you know, big role for me. I actually learned something that's very obvious now, which is if you um, continue and continually um, interfere in other people's work when you've given them a job to do, or you take them to task because they haven't done it in the way in which you might do it that there's nothing more you know demoralizing so there was a a joke that has continued from cornerstone Mm. into mencap where if uh, colleagues feel i am stepping on their toes they are given permission to tell me that i'm adding too much value which is uh, which is code for you know back off we know what we're doing (laughs) but um that was a lesson that took me a you know a couple of years to learn where I thought I was offering help and advice and helping to bring colleagues up to a standard they were actually perceiving it as you know not being given the freedom to do their own job so uh, I hope I do better nowadays. That's super interesting in the um, in the kind of tech or startup world they have this concept of founder bombing which is uh, where, where where we'll go away and read something or, or go to some event or speak to our coach and come up with some fantastic idea and just bomb it onto someone and that yeah try and give people permission <laughs> to let you know that you are indeed founder bombing and and it's uh, unnecessary <laughs> um so you mentioned cornerstone there and i think that uh obviously you had a long stint at cornerstone and achieved a lot of things but something that's really interesting to me um is the local cornerstone initiative could you explain a little bit around local cornerstone which sounds from the outside like a very bold change to make it came about briefly because um i was at a meeting with my board uh one day and we were discussing whether or not we could pay our social work sorry our social care colleagues a uh, living wage and i remember driving home and thinking i didn't want to be the chief executive of an organization that could only pay you know living wage Um, And that really I was fed up going to meetings and events where everybody was talking about the need for change in social care. Everyone was talking about social care being at crisis point, but nobody was really doing anything about it. 
So I took three months out of the business with two other colleagues and we went on some study trips to different parts of the world, not just to visit businesses from the health and social care sector, but other businesses like Southwest Airlines and Timpsons, for example. And we tried to gather all that information about what makes an organisation great. And uh, we brought that back. And we had a very ambitious uh, objective, which was to transform social care in the UK. And um, I have to say it was one of the most brilliant times of my career leading that strategy, but also one of the most challenging. Um, brought up lots of issues about appetite for risk, about the possibility or opportunity for one organisation to change a system, which obviously is not an easy thing to do. Um, and also just the real importance of um, communicating clearly with colleagues about your vision, about having the right people on the bus mm. and about the risks that are inherent if you introduce a flat structure and you remove layers of management and, and be realist, being realistic about the pace uh, of which you can do that successfully without upsetting the apple cart. So I could probably talk to you for hours about it, but there was lots of brilliant moments. I'm glad that we were brave enough and bold enough to try to do something and um, I bring all that learning, um, warts and all, to my role at Mencap. Excellent. And, and now moving on to your, your time at Mencap, but Dan, I want to keep up with this um, concept of the importance of a big vision, but perhaps that not being the be all and end all, or at least it needs to be backed up um, with the types of people that you mentioned there. Um, from my understanding, you've, you've kind of set a, a new big vision at Mencap. Um, is it to to make the UK the best place? Um, uh, and, and I just want to talk a little bit on that. And how yeah, it's important to note at the time of recording um, the new big. Well, no, the new big plan, as we uh, describe our strategy, uh, it's, it's called a big plan. A new big plan is um, work in progress, and we yeah. are doing the internal and external okay. stakeholder consultation so this is all out in the public domain but I wouldn't want to um, preempt it as the final strategy just yet um, but yes our proposed bold new vision is for the mm -hmm. UK to be the best place in the world to live if you have a learning disability to live a happy and healthy life and we have um, begun to articulate through obviously listening to people with a learning disability and their families what would the best look and feel like? And um, the way in which the strategy is evolving is based on a locality model, thinking about a person with a learning disability at the centre of everything. And that person lives in a community and then looking at what, as a society, we need to do to change. So our new strategy is likely to have three layers, if you like, um, support to individuals and families, support to communities, and then our campaigning work that we do at a societal level. So we also are consulting on our new purpose, which is to provide a vital spark to enable um, that vision to become a reality. And by that, we mean that MENCAP doesn't have to be the biggest, the leading um, uh, organization in this or charity in this field but actually that we can use our talents our legacy our history our brand our resources to provide a vital spark to individuals to communities and to people in society to make change happen 
so it's um a fascinating journey and it's not my vision by any means I've, I've worked uh with a team of brilliant colleagues and most importantly with people with a learning disability and we're really excited about the potential that's excellent it's really really exciting and i think something that would excite and engage people who are, who are helping to make that a reality um so just to kind of close the loop a little bit here um you mentioned that listening has been a big part of the the first 90 to 100 days certainly at mencap you mentioned that listening not only to um other people who are working at mencap but also to uh, the people that you're trying to help the people with learning disabilities has been a really big important part of putting together um the big plan and, and the new new vision um how do you think listening will play a part of play a part in bringing this to life um, and in the kind of for want of a better term daily grind over the course of the next months quarters and years in in making this a reality for people with learning? yes great question um, and I'm not a fan personally of um, any business whether it's a charity or any other organization having a five-year plan is so set in stone that you hear conversations uh, such as, or we can't do that because it doesn't Mm. fit with the strategy or, you know, whatever. Um, Obviously a strategy is there like a roadmap really, rather than a blueprint in my view. Um, And it should guide everyone towards a Mm. common purpose, but leave enough freedom and agility so that um, colleagues and others can, you know, can respond in in the context of helping to achieve that vision. So I don't think you can do that or implement such such an agile strategy unless you are prepared to listen. And that's not doing a staff survey once a year or conducting Mm. a survey with people that you serve once a year. It has to be an ongoing process. And we're certainly, um, through some work that our people director has done on agile HR, we're certainly wanting to introduce new ways of working that are much more about agility and being responsive. And of course, we've all had to do that during the COVID-19 pandemic. We've been forced to do it. Um, So I think listening will be embedded into the way in which we monitor success and how we evaluate impact. So there's going to be a continuous listening and feedback loop into the implementation of the strategy excellent that's that's uh, fantastic to him so that's um everything that i wanted to ask you today around the kind of big picture and and and, and your um kind of career rise and, and now your time at mencap i just wanted to give you the opportunity um, now to, for anyone who's listening is there one piece of um, advice that you might have picked up or one learning from from your career that you think might help those aspiring uh, leaders that are listening to this podcast or give them a bit of a reminder on how they might um, go about trying to goodness that's a tricky question isn't it to come up with that one uh, piece of gold Um, I think Mm -hmm. for me it's it's being Mm -hmm. authentic Um, you know most most of the people that I know who are in leadership positions and that I work alongside or I get support from are genuinely authentic leaders. I don't think you should have to read a book on how to be an authentic leader. I think it should just come to you naturally. But what I mean by that is, yeah, be yourself. And, you know, if you are in 
a position of leadership or a CEO or managing director, then of course you must have achieved something in your life in order to hold that position. But it is, um, it's a gift, it's an honor, it's a privilege. It's not a, a power uh, role, not in my view. So yeah, my one bit of advice would be, be yourself. Um, don't be frightened to be or to show your vulnerability. Be human, be interested in other people. And uh, I think it will take you a long way. Thank you so much, Adele. There's a lot of um, learnings in there for me, certainly, and I'm sure for the Thank audience you. as well. Thanks very much for joining us today. Some fantastic advice from Adele there. Be yourself, be human, be approachable, be authentic, and always listen. Great advice from a true listening leader. Now, if you have any questions, or if you've got any listening leaders that you think we should be talking to, just drop us an email on podcast at theideasshow.com. But for now, thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this show, and we'll see you next time.